Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. December is a time of year we associate with holiday gifts. And this past December, the High Museum received an extraordinary gift of 114 wood-carved sculptures by self-taught artists. Katie Gentleson is the High Museum Curator of Folk and Self-Taught Art. She'll tell us about the impact of this substantial gift to the High from the collectors Anne and Robert Levine. First, Empower a Refugee, the Backyard Humanity Movement and Piece of Thread is a recent book written by the Georgia author Patricia Holt, which chronicles the Clarkston nonprofit Piece of Thread, founded by Denise Smith. The organization employs refugee women to create one of a kind handbags. The book contains stories of the women's experiences working at Piece of Thread and how they came to live in the U.S. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Patricia Holt via Zoom about creating this book. Here the author explains what led her to write these stories. I had spent time in Jordan, and while there, met an incredible Arab woman, Palestinian by birth, who took me to the refugee camps. I had wanted to meet the artists who created the beautiful needlework. And no matter who I asked about it, no one had an answer. Finally, the librarian at the American school said, well, she knew someone that might be willing to take me to meet them. That someone was Leila Wahhabi the subject of my first book, Committee of One. I spent six days a week with her for two years, seeing how one purposeful woman could make a difference. She had no foundation, no nonprofit, just herself. And she believed mightily in giving a hand up, not a hand out. I was able to see the difference that that made. When my husband died and I moved to Atlanta to live with my daughter, 
I missed the warmth and the generosity and the kindness of the Arab people so much, and I sought a way to reconnect with them here. Ultimately, I was told about Denise Smith and Piece of Thread, contacted them and asked permission to write their story. So this then put me in touch with the refugee women who work at Piece of Thread, and I feel so privileged and honored to participate in their stories. Yeah, they truly are wonderful. For those unfamiliar with what Piece of Thread is, can you tell us about the organization? Yes. Denise spent six years in Lebanon on a mission trip with her husband, Art. She grew to love the Arab people as well. And when she came home from that mission, she decided there had to be a way for her to keep those people in her lives. Her big talent was sewing. So she decided that she would take her sewing machine and herself to Clarkston and spoke to an apartment manager and received permission to teach women to sew in one of the basement apartments in one of the buildings. That's how Piece of Thread started. Well, since they couldn't be responsible for the sewing machines or for anything else, she had to pack those up every single time she taught and then bring everything back out the next time she appeared. As time went on, the women became more and more sophisticated in their talent, and she found a way to give them sustainable income by teaching them to sew and sell one-of-a-kind handbags. They sell the products at trunk shows, at women's conferences, at church conferences, at art fairs, and at art events around Atlanta and elsewhere. And as of last year, another chapter started in Chattanooga. Wow, that's amazing. And she and Stephanie worked tirelessly to that end. And Stephanie's her assistant. Yes. And she met Stephanie as a teenager who was in one of her groups that she was teaching at the time. You write about several of the artesian threaders who work at Piece of Thread, many of which had fled persecution from their home countries of Iraq and Afghanistan and around that area. What did you hope to convey about their journeys to America? One of the big misunderstandings in the U.S. is the belief that refugees are illegal immigrants. That is not the case. Their definition is that they must have fled their country to a bordering country through war, drought, or famine. Once in the bordering country, they are placed in refugee camps. While in the camps, they may request refugee status to be able to be moved to another country because the possibility of going home does not exist any longer. Some of the people that I write about were in refugee camps for 18 years before their request was approved. Only 1% of people in the refugee camps, of which there are millions, receive refugee status. It is not given lightly. And before they can leave the camps, they are vetted by five different agencies, including Homeland Security, the FBI, and the CIA. Once given the piece of paper that says, you are going to leave here and go to, in our case, Clarkston, Georgia, 
Of course, these people have never heard of Clarkston, Georgia. They know nothing except that they're going to leave the camps and get on a plane and go somewhere. People also do not realize that that plane fare must be paid back within six months. Everyone thinks that they're all getting a free ride. That is not true. So International Rescue Committee gave refugee status to one of the artisans. Her name is Fahima. And her husband came to Clarkston, Georgia. The IRA, the International Rescue Service, gave them the ticket. They came here to Clarkston. The ticket had to be repaid. They put them in a small apartment. All of the items in the apartment are from Goodwill or other entities. And the only new things are mattresses. They have three to six months to get a job. During that time, many of the family services then helped Mohammed, Fahima's husband, to get a job. Before reading this book, I didn't realize that Iraqi education system was well-resourced and open to women and offered even free higher education before the 1990s. Many of the refugee women and their husbands that you write about are highly educated, but it's often difficult for them to find work here in the States. Why is that? Language is sometimes a barrier. Unfortunately, one of our problems in the U.S. is that it doesn't matter what degree the person has from their own country. It's not accepted here. So despite college education, despite years in a particular field, they're told when they come here, I'm sorry, you're going to have to start all over again. We don't accept this degree. Therefore, doctors are working at a chicken factory. They're working at a distribution center for Walmart. So in addition to making all the adjustments of coming here, you can picture the husband totally humiliated by not being able to support his family adequately. This is one of the things that I hope can change with time in the U.S., that these difficult paths to education that they already have faced in their own country can be eliminated here. We need educated, qualified help. And these are professionals. In one of my refugees' cases, which was particularly disheartening, he worked for the U.S. military in Afghanistan during the war and was in the field as an interpreter with them every day, facing the same kind of danger and mortality that our own forces were facing. And yet, when he came here, he couldn't get a job. Wow. Finally, Denise found him a job an hour and a half away from their apartment, so a three-hour round trip every day, as a mechanic working at an upgraded gas station. Then, his wife, Fahima, became very ill and had to be admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. Who is going to take care of his children and the little baby that had been born recently? Nobody. So he had to quit that job and stay home to take care of the children. She was in a coma for nine days. Denise stepped in and found an Afghan doctor who could explain to them exactly what was happening. Mohammed could speak English, but they didn't understand all those technical words. She also asked the Afghan doctor to call his mother and father to explain what was happening to their daughter-in-law, and to the parents. She was in the hospital for a total of 32 days, if you can imagine. When she was released from the hospital, Denise helped 
him to find a job as an overland trucker, which means he's away for a month to a month and a half at a time. This is just a small example of the things that they face and overcome. Yeah. And you really outline that in your book over and over again with the different stories. And you also talk about many of the refugee women still have family over in the Middle East. And some of those women still live in that fear that ISIS or other terrorist organizations could discover where they live now. When approaching the interviews with these women, how did you maintain that privacy but also tell their stories? I had each of them sign a release form that gave me permission to tell their story and when asked included the statement that I would not reveal their names or their locations. So those were changed for the stories and there were many women who would not allow their pictures to be taken. They wanted no one to find out where they were. So I honor that throughout and any pictures you see in the book are those that I gained permission to show. Mm -hmm. What discovery when interviewing these women really struck you the most? One of the things that made Piece of Thread important to me was that these women were completely alone. They're used to a tribal culture where families are the 32nd cousin twice removed is still your family. So they live in clusters. Everyone lives around each other. They come and go with ease. And now here this woman is in a little apartment in a strange country. She knows no one. If they're lucky enough to have a car, the husband has to use it for work. So she has no way to leave the apartment or the complex. And until Denise comes through for them in an apartment building and they see other women working and sewing, and they see her talking to people, they're crying every day. But once they meet her and start working, now they are engaged, they're busy, they don't have to think about their loneliness all the time, and Denise becomes part of their new family. They don't just sew for Denise. She provides them, and her volunteers as well, friendship and support such as being with Fahima when she was in the hospital, visiting her afterward, making sure the family was okay. So the amount of love and kindness that is shown by Piece of Thread is as heartwarming as the opportunity for women to make a living. When refugee women begin working with Piece of Thread, can you talk about that process of how they're educated on the sewing machines and how they learn to sell their pieces? This is such a heartwarming part they are required to be taught for six months. And one of the refugee women has graduated to be the teacher of the students. The women sign up, there's a waiting list. They only have so many machines. So she trains them at the training center, which is at Grace Village in Clarkston on Ponce de Leon. And after six months, the student receives her very own sewing machine and a bin that's filled with all of the supplies that she needs. And there's a graduation ceremony with a certificate and a celebration. I can't tell you how proud and how happy the students are. These are mothers who are having to stay home and take care of their children. They certainly can't afford childcare. 
And now this makes them proud and they, they feel useful and they feel important. So that's the beginning of their new career. They're able to take all of this to their homes. And when the work is finished, one of the volunteers picks up finished work and leaves them new patterns and new work to be done. They're paid every month by the number of bags they sell. So their names and their place of birth is put inside each bag so we know who made it. And for every bag that's sold by that person, she is paid 50% of the price of the bag. So the better job you do, and the more interesting the color patterns that you choose from the beautiful donated fabric from the design studio at the Atlanta Mart. And then we put the beautiful colors together to formulate the patterns for the bag. And then they complete with the sewing, they complete the uh, interior of the bags, they put their card in, and then they're ready to do the next one. So it's a labor of love all the way around. Mm. And that's so beautiful that they put their names and birth dates in there as like a, a beautiful signature that when someone purchases it, not only are they getting a beautiful bag, but also a piece of the artesian threader. Yes, they are. Your book, Empower Refugee, was originally published in 2020. I'm curious if you've kept in contact with Denise and her organization since the impact of the pandemic. Yes, the additional statement on the name of the book, Empower Refugees, is Peace of Thread and the Backyard Humanity Movement. One of the things I want to convey with the women and with the reader is that I know people travel thousands of miles at great expense to help someone in another country. But please believe me when I tell you that there are many, many people right here, only a little ways from Atlanta, where you can help people in your own backyard. So needless to say, despite the pandemic and despite the disappointment of all of the festivals and fairs and conferences and all of the other things being closed, that does not mean that we are not still in love with our refugee women, still helping them, still having them prepare for when the pandemic is over with their bags. And even though there's a slowdown, the training doesn't stop and the help doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. According to the National Immigration Forum, in FY 2021, the U.S. refugee limit was the lowest it has been since the passage of the Refugee Act in 1980. By telling these refugee stories and putting a face with beautiful photos, by the way, to their names, what do you want Americans to take away from this book? I want them to understand that there is a vast difference between people crossing the border illegally and refugees. Refugees want to become a productive part of the community, and 85% of them have a job within the first three to six months of their arrival. They want to educate their children. They want to become fully American. They are not living under the radar. They require a driver's license. They apply for American citizenship. They are truly members of our community. So please, when you see someone, whether they're in a head covering or not, respect the fact that this is a fellow citizen. They're on their way to being 
just like you and me. They are already that, but until everyone in the U.S. understands that they are already that, we still have to go through the steps. Author Patricia Holt speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. The book, Empower a Refugee, The Backyard Humanity Movement and Peace of Thread, is available now. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. December is a time we associate with holiday gifts. And this past December, the High Museum received an extraordinary gift of 114 wood-carved sculptures by self-taught artists. Katie Gentleson is the High Museum Curator of Folk and Self-Taught Art. She's with us now via Zoom. Katie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. It's great to be back. This substantial gift is from Connecticut-based collectors Anne and Robert Levine. Why did they choose the High Museum to receive their collection? Well, I'll have to speak on behalf of of Anne and Bob, Um, so I, I hope that's okay with them. I think that What they saw at the high that they were impressed by is the way that we have for decades, you know, really since we established a department for self-folk and self-taught artists in 1996, for decades we've embraced the incredible contributions that artists without formal training have made to art history and culture writ large. And they did come to visit the high in the years that we were talking about this gift. They do have a son who lives in Georgia not far from the city. Ah. And they paid us a visit and they were also just impressed by what they saw at the museum in terms of the diversity of our audience, in terms of all of the different ages they saw enjoying the art at the museum, people from you know all different backgrounds in terms of race and gender and ability. They were really moved by seeing this broad swath of the kind of Atlanta metropolitan population at the museum actively learning and enjoying the collection. Indeed, the High was the first general interest museum to establish a dedicated department for self-taught art. It surprises me that it took until the 1990s for that to happen. Why had self-taught art been overlooked in America's general interest museums? Well, I think that the the reality is that it it had a presence within departments like 
decorative arts or American. And in fact, a lot of the historical folk art in, in the highest collection prior to this gift was in our deck arts department. So things like our incredible Edgefield jugs and 19th century quilts. So the material was present in our museum and other museums prior to the 1990s. But in general, it, it is true that it wasn't until you know the 1990s when you really saw a lot of institutions taking seriously the kinds of calls for multiculturalism that had emerged, especially in the 1980s really demanding that museums take a, a hard look at themselves and their definition of art and the people that they called artists and try to broaden that to be more inclusive of people from different backgrounds, including, you know, across the spectrum of training. How did the Levines amass such a large collection? It's actually quite lovely, their collecting story. They, they married in 1987 and shortly after that, they attended an antiques fair in Connecticut and just sort of fell in love with what they were seeing there in terms of wood sculpture that also had this theme of American history. And over the next three decades, they collected lots of different kinds of folk art, so art made by untrained American artists, but they gradually realized that, that the core of their interest was around this kind of theme of history that seemed so ubiquitous for so many different artists. And Bob, in addition to being a neurologist, has a really deep interest in American politics and has self-published um, books in relation to American politics. And so for him, it was this kind of, you know, interest that he already thought a lot about and, uh, and then he could see it coming alive through these objects. And so they built this collection over the subsequent decades. And by 2011, I believe they had carvings of all but 12 of the U.S. presidents. Um, so it was a journey for them. And they kind of realized that, that their great passion was around this theme of American history and wood. The carving depicting President Roosevelt and his cabinet by Moyes Potvin is especially impressive. Would you talk about that piece and the artist who created it. With pleasure. This is one of the most amazing pieces in, in our gift. And um, and Moise Potvin is an incredible artist. So he immigrated to the United States from Quebec as a child. And he had to go to work pretty quickly. And one of the first places where he worked was in a loom factory. Constructing looms, he developed a very, very sophisticated skill for carving, which he later in his life as an adult developed into this new profession. He, one of the things that he did for many of his adult years was work as a, as a violin carver. And he made 150, they think, violins and you know repaired thousands. But on the side, he had this love and interest in automatons, which are essentially like large collections of figures that are mechanized. Mm -hmm. So you turn a knob or you flip a switch and they all start moving. And he created these mechanized dioramas, like the one that we have in our collection, which is a depiction of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's cabinet. And it was a historic cabinet because it was the first cabinet to include a woman. Potvin is thought to have carved it in 1935, two years after Frances Perkins was appointed as President Roosevelt's labor secretary. And she, again, was the first woman to serve in a president's cabinet. And she's seen in the diorama sitting next to Roosevelt. 
And all of the cabinet members have these incredibly expressive faces and they're engaged in actions, gesturing towards each other and reading things. And it's a hyper detailed carving that really shows off his skill as a wood carver. The floor is covered in marquetry. There are sculptural niches behind uh, the cabinet members that have busts of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. The level of detail is just amazing. And uh, again, I mean, it, it, it's hard to even conceive of how such a thing is possible because the heads of these figures are just a few inches tall. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so it's really his kind of masterpiece. He, he's thought to have made about 20 of these kinds of dioramas and he toured them all around the country um, in little shows, including eventually he set up shop in Niagara Falls, kind of in the tourism district and, and made a little museum of his dioramas. And so this was seen by a great many Americans, I think, prior to going into kind of private hands and eventually into the Levine's collection. Another standout work is the Red Baron's Airplane, which sits atop a carved pedestal. Would you describe this piece? So this Red Baron piece uh, is a wonderful example of the whirligig tradition in American art. These are sculptures that would have spun in the wind. And so this is a, an airplane that uh, is kind of on what might've been like an old chair rod. That's what it looks like to me. It's kind of a dowel-like stand. And it was crafted for amusement. Whirligigs are an art form that were created in Europe. And there are examples that date to, uh, I think the early 18th century in Europe, but it's something that really flourished within the United States. The first kind of mention of a whirligig is in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which describes uh, an image of a figure flapping in the wind. And so these are sculptures that, again, were done for amusement and were, were meant to be outside and that often took on historical themes or figures of authority. So a lot of the other whirligigs in the Levine's collection exemplify how whirligig carvers would take as their subjects, you know, policemen or politicians or figures of authority that even if they respected them and that's why they were carving them, they could also kind of poke fun at them because again, these were, were sculptures that flapped in the wind, their arms go round and round in kind of a almost panicked fashion almost. And there are some other great whirly gigs in the collection that are uh, things like a, a butcher whose arms actually end with knives. Oh, wow. And this was a whirly gig that was probably used outside of a butcher shop. So yeah, again, when it spins in the wind, you can see this butcher flailing his knives through the air. And whirly gigs are a really important kind of component of this collection. There were about two dozen whirly gigs that we got within this gift. And it's just a traditional form of American folk art that we had some examples of it the high, but not very many. And so this is a, is a great new uh, strength within our collection. So much more interesting than those, I don't even know, what do you call those plastic blow-up things that, you know, <laughs> in the wind that it looked like they're doing a wave? What, I don't, is there a name for those? We call them blow-ups in my family. And of course, my young children are obsessed with them. And I try to limit, we have a small front yard. And I, I try to use that as an excuse to limit how many blow-ups we can have. But our neighbor, <laughs> who has an equally modest yard, has about a thousand blow-ups. So my excuses don't go very far. <laughs> oh, how funny. George Washington is the subject 
of a number of works in this collection. Do you have a favorite among the George Washingtons? That's a good question. Yeah, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were by far the two most depicted presidents in this collection. And I like a lot of the George Washington depictions. Um, probably my favorite is a small figure of him on horseback greeting you by taking off his hat. I really love the depictions of Lincoln that are in the collection. There's one in particular, it's a figure that's very abstract. So his facial features aren't, aren't fully realized. His whole body is kind of comprised of these smooth limbs. And it's, a, it's Lincoln bent over chopping wood. And it's actually a little toy, a mechanical toy. And, and these are the kind of thing that are seen throughout the Levine collection, that there are um, children's toys, figures of amusement that, that they collected that were also conceived in the legacy of these historical figures. But I love this piece because it really emphasizes part of why folk artists in general are so important um, in America, which is that they are conceiving of, you know, all kinds of artistic forms, but in this case, historical forms in their own style and in their own aesthetic language. And, and this one, the way that it's so simple, the way that the forms are so kind of sleek and geometric almost, it really looks like something a modern artist would do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is what first drew the art world to folk artists uh, at the turn of the 20th century was this kind of formal interest that these objects held and the way that what untrained artists were doing and not, not just folk artists, but children or artists outside of Western academic traditions, they, they were doing things formally, aesthetically, that is exactly what modernist sculptors and painters were trying to do, you know, when they, when they reduced form to abstraction. Um, and so to me, this, this wonderful image of Lincoln chopping wood really evidences the kinds of ways that without having, you know, a sophisticated vocabulary or kind of engagement with theories about art, folk artists manage to create things that, that look very modern. Indeed, we look at Picasso, a number of the works that reference African art in the early 20th century paintings. And it's a direct line to, I don't know, that's not folk art. No, it's not. It's certainly not. What is true is that in the same, at the same time that Picasso was looking at things like masks from the Congo, there were artists both in Europe and the United States looking at historical American folk art for the first time. And for similar reasons, again, because these artists who were not working in a Western academic tradition were doing things that went against, you know, centuries of ideas about art, about the way that it should be conceived in a realistic fashion and, you know, what kinds of subjects um, artists should create. This art that posed a, a totally different set of rules and forms was very inspiring to artists who were trying to kind of overthrow all of these uh, long held assumptions about what art must be. And yes, it's true. I mean, African art and American folk art are, are radically different, radically different cultural traditions, radically different kinds of objects and, you know, in terms of what they were created for. But the kind of avant-garde interest in American folk art and um, masks and other kinds of uh, sculptural forms from Africa, they have something in common. Folk music 
is notoriously difficult to define. Would you say folk art is equally elusive when it comes to a definition? Absolutely. This this category of art, this idea of folk art, is really a product of, especially the period after World War One, is when um, artists and collectors started to become interested in in folk art. And from that very moment that that curators like myself started becoming interested in this material, debates have ensued about how to define this work. You know, what qualifies as folk art, what doesn't. Um, exactly what kinds of traditions it encompasses, and they're very unresolved. And that's that's something that I don't think will necessarily ever become fully resolved because it's a category of art that's inclusive of so many different kinds of makers. And their common denominator is really just this idea that they they didn't go through a kind of formal artistic training. They did not go through an academic channel to hone their art skills. That said, many of them, like Moise, who we talked about earlier, were trained in different ways. And that training directly led to um, the kind of art that they made. So it's it's very inconclusive, I would say. And, and to me, the terms are important because it matters what we call artists and the kinds of labels that we ascribe to them. But what's more important, you know, is embracing them and their uniqueness, their individuality, and the incredible works of art that that they created, whether we know exactly what to call them or not. So the terms primitive and naive, those are pejorative, aren't they? I think they've yeah, become seen as pejorative because primitive is, is assumed to have this kind of the opposite of, of sophisticated or, or civilized. And so that feels pejorative for sure in a 21st century context. Naive is something, similarly, it doesn't have quite the same derogatory cultural connotations, I think, because it hasn't been applied, especially to artists of color, in the same way that primitive, unfortunately, has been. But it's still a bit diminutive in terms of assuming that the people who are, you would call naive, are innocent somehow of what they're doing, of of the kinds of skills that they've developed and, and what use they're putting them to. And so in both cases, those are words that, yeah, we wouldn't really use anymore. And I mean, folk art really tends to refer to more historical objects, like the ones that are in the Levine collection, which were often made out of traditions passed down from generation to generation. So wood carving might be something that was learned through, you know, an apprenticeship or a trade, but came out of a skill that was kind of transmitted via community or family. And sometimes they're objects of utility, in the case of this art that we see in the Levine collection, again, these were these were not necessarily used. Even whirligigs didn't have a utilitarian function. They were they were for whimsy. And many of the other forms that you see, like bus, commemorative bus and plaques, you know, those are used to remember somebody or remember a historical episode, but they don't have a use value like quilts or a jug. Yeah, I guess that's where craft comes in. Katie, what drew you to self-taught art? I don't know if you know this, Lois, but I, I also have a book out that came out earlier this year called Gatecrashers, The Rise of the Self-Taught Artists in America. And it, it explores the, the moment that I, that I was speaking about before, kind of after World War I, when self-taught artists first started to get recognition as major cultural contributors in America. And I became determined to write this book when I was working as a journalist in New York 
uh, after college and I happened upon different self-taught artists through art fairs and uh, exhibitions at the American Folk Art Museum. I stumbled across artists who had made a major impact uh, earlier in the 20th century, people like the, the most well-known is Anna Mary Robertson Moses, Grandma Moses, who was the most famous American artist of the 20th century. And arguably, you know, nobody has surpassed her kind of ubiquity. I just became fascinated at why they were kind of left out of the, the mainstream narratives of American art. And I, and I really wanted to be somebody who could help um, put them back in and bring attention to these incredible artistic achievers and also how they, again, fit into larger pictures of what what is new and exciting in American art throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. How did I miss the release of your book? When did it come up? Um, it came out in April of 2020. So it, it's it's an academic book. It came out from the University of California Press. That's respectable. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it is, it is respectable. Because <laughs> it, it's, it, it, well, it's not written necessarily for a general audience, so it doesn't have the kind of like marketing behind it. Um, so that's, and then obviously the pandemic, like I certainly didn't promote it as much as I should have over the past year. But there will be a chance to talk more about that if you'd like, because we are planning an exhibition based on it. Oh, wonderful. And I'd, I'd love to read the book. Well, I would love for you to read it. And you can be introduced to these other wonderful kind of earlier 20th century artists. Oh, yes. What is the importance of the Levine's donation to the museum? Well, this is a collection that that really um, opens up a lot of new possibilities for us because I think I mentioned that most of our folk and self-taught art collection is from late in the 20th century and into the 21st century. The majority of the historic folk art that we have um, is actually even in our decorative arts collection. And even of those objects, we have very few works prior to 1900 that were made by self-taught artists. So this collection from the Levines dramatically changes that because the vast majority of the objects are from, you know, the mid to late 19th century into the first half of the 20th century. So it gives us this huge opportunity to think about artistic lineage among self-taught artists and the way that self-taught artists have been making these exciting, innovative artistic contributions to culture in our country going back centuries. And I think they'll connect not only to the later 20th and 21st century artists in the folk and self-taught collections, but also to our historic American holdings, because that, that department, our American Arts Department, has so many incredible works from the 19th century that have things like Abraham Lincoln, you know, at their center. Um, and so the opportunity to kind of look back on 19th century art in multiple ways, you know, not just in the kind of fine art academic tradition, but also in this more self-taught folk art tradition is just a new opportunity that we've never had before. And I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and I will say that we even already have a gallery in, in the folk and self-taught galleries of the permanent collection wing, where I present works that are about self-taught artists thinking about their place in our nation's history. The ability to have more objects that would fit into this really strong holding that we already have of artists like Mary Proctor, you know, creating a portrait of the Obama family or um, Ulysses Davis, an incredible Savannah artist carving the Statue of Liberty in the first half of the 20th century. 
these are works that are going to be great mates with with works from the Levine collections. So that's that's what I'm thrilled about is that it just it, it fits so wonderfully with what we have, but it also opens up all these new possibilities for connection. Will all 114 pieces be on view? Not initially. I think that they will certainly start joining some of our permanent collection presentations in years to come. And I have some ideas for some more focused exhibitions that might highlight groups of them, but we won't present them all together, all 114 of them, you know, as, a, as an exhibition or as kind of like a new wing. So they will be in dialogue with your current collection. Katie Gentleson, this has been a joy. It always is a joy to talk with you. Um, congratulations on getting to open 114 holiday gifts in December. Thank you. Well, I'm very grateful to the Levines and very grateful to you, Lois, for, for always um, checking in with us. Thank you so much. All best to you. Thank you. Take care. Katie Gentleson, curator of folk and self-taught art at the High Museum. More information about the acquisition will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. They were referred to as girls, but the women who made up the British government's special operations executives during World War II did the same dangerous jobs as their male counterparts. This real-life group of female secret agents deployed to France in 1944 is the subject of Pam Genoff's novel, The Lost Girls of Paris. For Women's History Month, we're going to listen back to my 2019 interview with Pam Genoff. Here's the backstory to The Lost Girls of Paris. I was researching ideas for my next book, and I, when I stumbled upon the story of the women who had served Britain's Special Operations Executive, SOE, as it was known, was an initiative by Winston Churchill in the darkest days of World War II to set Europe ablaze, and he wanted to send agents in to engage in sabotage and subversion in occupied Europe. And originally the agents were men, but at some point the men became too easily detected on the streets of France, and so they decided to deploy women. And the stories that I learned about the women who served SOE really informed and inspired the Lost Girls of Paris. The book begins with the discovery of an abandoned suitcase in Grand Central Station. That opening chapter is titled Grace. What do we learn about her? Grace is sort of an unusual character, I think. It is 1946 Manhattan, and Grace Healy is a young widow. She's what I call not quite a war widow, because although she lost her husband during World War II, she didn't lose him to combat. She lost him in a pre-deployment accident. And so Grace is living alone in New York, struggling with her guilt and grief, and trying to figure out what comes next in her life. When she discovers an abandoned suitcase, in Grand 
central. Looking inside, she finds the photographs of 12 young women, and on the outside of the suitcase is scrawled the name Trigg. She comes to learn that Eleanor Trigg was the spy handler for SOE who managed the women that served that agency. And the book becomes her story to find out about Eleanor and the girls, and through doing so, heal herself. There are more chapters titled Grace, and soon we realize that there are two more women's names, each with their own recurring chapters. You mentioned Eleanor. Would you talk about the structure of the novel? Certainly. My book looks at the women who served SOE through three points of view. The first is Marie. She's a young British mother, a single mother, who makes the unfathomable choice to leave her young daughter and serve SOE as an agent in occupied France. The second woman is Eleanor Trigg, and Eleanor was inspired by a real woman named Vera Atkins. Vera was the spy handler, if you will, who was in charge of recruiting, deploying, and maintaining contact with the agents, the female agents. And um, Vera, after the war, when many of the agents had been captured and killed, went looking to find out what happened to them, as does my fictitious Eleanor Trigg, to find out not just what happened, but why and how they were captured. And then, of course, the third point of view is Grace Healy in New York. Now, I read in the afterward that you highly recommend reading the true story, the biography of Vera Atkins. One thing Eleanor insists upon is that the women know how to use the kinds of weapons they encounter in the field. And in addition to operating a gun, they have gadgets which bring to mind things James Bond might use if he were a woman. Please tell us about the gadgets. And was there really a place called Churchill's Toy Shop? There was. That was from actual history. There were there was a place in London where they made and devised all sorts of gadgets for the agents to use, things with trap doors and different places you could hide explosives and any manner of things. And so the agents, when they went to these training schools, and in re- reality, they actually went to about two or three or even four training schools pre-deployment, though in my book, it's just one. Um, they learned how to use these gadgets, and they also had to learn to do a wide range of jobs, because even if you were sent over as a radio operator, you might find yourself working as a courier or something else. And so they needed all the skills to survive. Where did you learn about these things, Pam? You know, it's interesting. The Lost Girls of Paris is my 10th book and as predominantly written historical fiction. And for some books, there's a dearth of information. You're really trying to fill in the gaps. But SOE and even the women who worked for SOE have been pretty well documented in nonfiction writing. And so there's actually a really good deal of material available about the true history. And this time for me, the challenge was not finding the material, but stopping and actually stopping the research so I could write. Wow. Tell us about Vesper. Is he based on a real-life resistance fighter? Well, 
let me say this. Even though I borrow heavily, say, from Vera Atkins, I always say that my books are inspired by actual events rather than based on a true story. You know, I, I write fiction, and so I never want to stake too large of a claim around history because of the very great liberties that I take. That being said, my Vesper network was inspired by something called the Prosper Network, which was one of the circuits and one of the networks of SOE agents in France operating in France. And so the leader of that network, as he's called uh, in my book, Vesper is the code name, um, was loosely inspired by the man who would have led the Prosper Network. Ah. Now, one of the characters, Will, who flies dangerous missions for the cause, makes the point, there are people who have risen from all corners of France to help us. In what ways were some of the everyday people helping the resistance. Well, it's interesting, you know, um, the, there were obviously partisans or actual people who were kind of in the forest fighting and fi- resisting the Germans. And then there were everyday people. There were people who hid, our, hid the SOE agents, as we see in the book. And there were people who forged documents for them and, and people who acted as drop boxes or, you know, places where they could leave messages. And so what was very mindful was, one, the French contribution was really important, and the French didn't want to see that forgotten, but also the way the, pe- the French people put their lives on the line just by doing this. Indeed. What kind of impact did researching and writing this story have on you personally? Well, I was amazed by the scope and breadth of the heroism of these women, you know, these female agents. And even after working with World War II for two decades or so, I'm just stunned at the stories I learned that I was not familiar with previously. Uh, So there was certainly that piece of it. And then just recognizing how timely the themes are in this book. Um, One of the people involved in, uh, there's a movie option, and one of the people involved in that has said that she thinks it's very much a book for the Me Too moment where women are finding their voice. Author Pam Janoff. Her novel is The Lost Girls of Paris. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. 
Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.